everybody wants a fair election, but martial law? General Flynn has retweeted an absurd suggestion that we have a do-over election conducted under martial law? No, no, no. That's not the way to assure fair elections. What we need is a national commission on electoral integrity for all future elections. You're going to hear why on the dirt. General Michael Flynn, uh, whose pardon I supported, uh, the other day uh, retweeted one of the most dangerous and and absurd um, suggestions made in the follow-up to the election. Uh, The tweet proposed that the President of the United States declare martial law, claim that there's a constitutional emergency, send out the military, and conduct a re-vote in order to perhaps change the outcome of the election. This not only reflects total constitutional ignorance, but it would be an invitation, essentially, to a civil war. It is absurd, and these kinds of suggestions should not be validated by people in high positions or formerly high positions like General Michael Flynn. I don't know whether he supports it or was just retweeting it, but doing anything to in any way encourage that kind of extremism undercuts American democracy. Let's begin with the Constitution. The Constitution doesn't provide for martial law. It's simply not in the Constitution. Everybody knew about martial law at the time the Constitution was enacted. It was a power that states had to prevent violence and riots and insurrections, etc. Rarely used, uh, but used occasionally over time. Misused as often as it was used correctly. But there's no federal authority to declare a martial law. The only federal authority is to suspend the writ of habeas corpus in cases of insurrection and other criteria that nobody would suggest is happening today. There's certainly no basis for suspending uh, habeas corpus in order to conduct an election. Suspending habeas corpus would mean that the police or the military could arrest anybody they wanted and the arrested person would have no legal recourse, no ability to bring the case in front of the courts. That did happen during the Civil War. President Lincoln did suspend habeas corpus, and people were detained and even subject to extreme penalties, in one case the death penalty. The Supreme Court reversed it. And the Supreme Court has generally said, no, 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 martial law uh, doesn't really have a place to role to play in our society. They have accepted it in some instances, of, of labor violence, etc. But the idea of redoing this election and having the military come out really sounds like a banana republic. So please, please, please don't buy into the extremism of people who would undo the Constitution because they didn't like the outcome of this election. If you don't like the outcome of this election, hey, President Trump has suggested maybe he'll run in four years like Grover Cleveland did. Fine. Campaign for him, contribute to him, encourage him, vote for him, but don't undo American democracy because you didn't like the results of the election. But what if you, like maybe millions of others, believe the results of the election are uh, unfair and fraudulent? A lot of Americans believe that. Um, the issue is 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 not getting a fair hearing in the media, in the sense that the New York Times and other media don't report on these allegations. They just dismiss them out of hand. And um, we have to look forward. We have a very important election scheduled for January 5th. 
And there have been allegations uh, made to and by the Secretary of State of Georgia that there may be some efforts to in some way corrupt that election. Uh, Again, I haven't seen the evidence, but I've seen the allegations that there are claims that efforts are being made by some Democratic leaders to register people to vote who are not eligible to vote, people who don't live in the state, uh, encouraging people to come into the state, to establish residency quick now so that they can uh, uh, vote. Whether that would be fraudulent or not really would depend on their status. Did they move out to go to college? Have they moved out permanently? It's a felony to cast a vote or even to try to cast a vote when you're ineligible to vote. There have been claims that efforts have been made to register members of families who are dead. Uh, These are allegations that should be investigated, and it makes a more general point. And the more general point is, when you complain about election integrity after the election is over and your candidate has lost, that doesn't have the credibility that a claim before the election, before you know the outcome, that a claim of potential future corruption or just mistakes, those claims should be looked at at seriously. And it's crucial that the January 5th election, you know my views, I've expressed very strong views against the Reverend uh, Warnock for his statement about American soldiers that they can't serve God and military at the same time, his false accusations against Israel saying that Israel murders unarmed Palestinian children like birds of prey. Totally false, a blood libel. I cannot support Warnick, even though his election would give control of the Senate to the Democrats. I'm a Democrat, but control of the Senate is less important than having a senator who holds views like that. So I cannot support Warnick. I haven't heard back. I haven't seen him change uh, his views or at least admit he was wrong about his prior views. He now, you know, mouths some talking points about being pro-Israel, but they're not particularly persuasive. Um, So this election is a very important one. It may determine who controls the Senate, which means it may determine who controls the agenda over the next four years, because the divided government is less likely to implement the uh, campaign promises and, and agenda of the incoming president than uh, a Congress that's controlled by his a party in both houses. So it's very important that every plausible claim of future, future electoral malfunctions should be investigated now before the election occurs. You cannot trust the media on this issue. The New York Times has stopped reporting on claims of fraud in the election. They don't report on it. They just immediately, in the front page, of their paper, discounted, calling them bizarre, unproved, et cetera, et cetera. Well, some are, but some may not be. And we have a right to know uh, what claims are valid and what claims are not. So here's my proposal, and I really want your views on this because it's a rather radical proposal, but I think it's a very good one. We have to establish a national commission on election integrity for the future, a national commission on electoral integrity. Who would sit on it? Former justices of the Supreme Court, Justice Kennedy, for example, Justice O'Connor, former federal judges, um, former presidents of universities, uh, deans of uh, law schools, uh, heads of technology companies, 
people who are utterly respected and unbiased. And their job would be, preferably before an election mostly, but sometimes after an election if there's a challenge, to assure electoral integrity in a nonpartisan way, to look at the machines that are going to be used before they're used, test them, find out whether the software was uh, in some way distorted to turn votes from one candidate uh, to another. Check every state's process for validating uh, registration. Uh, check every process for mail-in votes. Uh, make sure that they comply with science, with the Constitution, and with basic uh, integrity. Um, in that way, we would have elections that were trusted, and we get a certification in every state that the election process that going forward is a good one before the election was held, and so the losing party would have far less to complain about. Obviously, if the elections were close at a given place and, and there were plausible allegations of fraud or miscounting or something else, this National Election Integrity Commission could, could look into those allegations and express its views. Um, it could be a, a formal or informal commission. I would prefer formal appointed by Congress or appointed by the judiciary or appointed by some combination of Congress and the judiciary, and it would have authority. It would have authority to require changes. It would could say, for example, that we, we've looked into sovereign voting machines. We have some doubts about uh, its uh, integrity, and we recommend or order that uh, different machines be used if you can do that in a timely fashion. Let's take this issue out of elections. Let's eliminate it before it ever becomes a partisan issue in the aftermath of a closely contested election. And the virtue of this plan is that nobody knows now who it will benefit and who it will hurt. Um, it's like the shoe on the other foot test. It requires you to vote for it and support it without knowing whether it helps your candidate or hurts your candidate or helps your party or hurts your party. I think it helps all Americans. What every American wants is an election that's fair and that has complete and total integrity to avoid the New York Times and CNN being the arbiter of whether an election was fair. That's what we're getting now. And we're getting the New York Times assessment and CNN's assessment in the face of their candidate winning. Would they be so sure if their candidate had lost? What were they saying in 2000 when their candidate, Al Gore, did lose? Uh, what would they say in Georgia if their candidates, the two Democrats, were to lose in a very, very close election, which they claimed was marred by all kinds of problems of voter fraud or computer glitches, etc. We don't want these issues to be resolved in the context of a disputed election itself, because partisan interests always come into play. You have secretaries of state who are one party or another. In Georgia, the secretary of state is running for re-election. He's a Republican. In some states, they're, they're Democrats. In some states, they're highly partisan. In other states, they're civil servants. 
Although the election of the president is not a national election, as I've said over and over again, it's 50 state elections plus the District of Columbia, we can have a national integrity commission that can look into every single election. It could be, uh, it could have a staff. It could have a staff that consists not only of uh, people who are experts in the the law and the Constitution, but experts in computer technology. I don't know whether the evidence I'm hearing about uh, computer glitches, we're going to hear more about it today. There are hearings, uh, there have been hearings, there have been uh, press conferences, there have been affidavits, there have been other statements made under oath at hearings in front of legislation, uh, legislators. Uh, yeah, I hear that, but I don't know who's going to make that assessment. I can't make that assessment. I can't tell you whether the sovereign machines work or don't work or whether they flip votes from one to the other or if there is a mistake, whether it was deliberate or unintentional. Experts can make that determination. And nonpartisan, unbiased experts, people of integrity, people who are trusted, should be making those determinations. So that's my proposal. Don't declare martial law. Don't suspend the Constitution. Don't take radical steps. Don't believe the New York Times and, and, and CNN. Make sure that our future elections are elections that all of us can trust. And the way to do that is before the election, have a National Election Integrity Commission, which has the power to enforce its research and its conclusions and guarantee that the American people have a fair election. Look, I've made many controversial statements on the Der Show. I don't think this is controversial. I challenge anybody to come up with an argument against it. Oh, it'll be expensive. Yeah, it'll cheap. It'll be. It'll cost nothing compared to what we're going through now. Preventive measures are always less expensive than reactive measures. A stitch in time. You know the rest of that saying. Um, I can't see any objections to it. I can't see partisan objections because nobody knows who it will hurt, hurt and who it will help. I, I can't see constitutional objections. There's no reason why the states can't be helped. In We're not having them decide who is going to be the electors. We're telling them they have to change the method if it violates the Constitution. That's a fair process. So please let me have your views. If you disagree, fine. If you agree, tell me how to implement it. How do we get this off the ground? I think it's a really, really good idea that should be considered by both parties. I will certainly try to get it to the right people in both parties once this election mess is over. Right now, everybody's going to be thinking about it in partisan terms. But once we finish this partisan phase of disputing the election, we can move on to a nonpartisan phase of making sure that elections in the future are indisputable. So that's my suggestion on The Der Show today. And I will now want to hear your reactions to my previous suggestions. And I await your calls on this suggestion on The Der Show. Now we get to the fun part of the show, the wits that's at the end of Der Show, the good calls from our viewers. So here's our first call. Hi, my question is this. <clears throat> Given that an illegally cast ballot has the potential to cancel out a legally cast ballot, why would the courts consider it more disenfranchising to uh, reject an 
illegally cast ballot than they would to accept it. It's a great question. I agree with you 100%. I think every invalid ballot that casts that is cast invalidates or negates uh, a valid ballot. So when you talk about voter disenfranchisement, you have to talk about both sides of the equation. You have to talk about not allowing a ballot that was valid or not allowing somebody to vote who validly could vote or making it difficult for that person to vote. That's a bad thing. But it's, yes, equally bad to count a vote by a dead person or a vote by a person who wasn't eligible to vote or a vote by a person who came from outer state or some or a vote by a person who voted twice. When you give one person the right to vote twice, you're taking away the power of the person who voted once. So I completely agree with you. We have to look at both sides of that equation. Our next call is from Allen in Florida. Hey, Mr. Dershowitz. Uh, I wanted to know your opinion on the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, from what I take it, even Israel is second-guessing their position, seeing as Iran is more likely to get a nuclear bomb out of the deal than if they were inside the deal and adhering to the IAEA inspections and whatnot. Do you think the deal was uh, good, uh, foolproof, and Iran not getting a nuclear bomb? Thank you. I enjoy the show. Thanks. Great question. I wrote a book on the subject called The Case Against the Iran Deal, so that obviously tells you where I stand on it. The deal was a disaster. Uh, The deal was a red uh, light for a few years uh, on Iran, and then it turned yellow and then very quickly turned green. So the deal explicitly allows Iran to start developing nuclear weapons once the sunset provisions kick in. Notwithstanding the introduction to the deal in which Iran promises it will never seek to acquire, develop, or obtain nuclear weapons, we know that's a lie. Uh, We know that they tried to develop nuclear weapons. Israel stole their um, material, their evidence, and presented it to the public showing they had a a nuclear weapons uh, program. And I don't think they stopped for one day. I think they just put it underground. Uh, They wouldn't allow uh, on-site inspectors. They uh, had scientists working not only on uh, a nuclear bomb itself, but on a delivery system, on stealth bombs, on very quiet delivery systems, rockets that could hit not only Israel, but American troops in in Italy and Germany and uh, perhaps ultimately in the United States. So no, the deal was a disaster. Um, I hope that if uh, President-elect or President-designate Biden goes back into the deal, it won't be the same deal, that he will demand the end of the sunset provisions and real inspections. But let me tell you one other thing. Iran will never develop nuclear uh, arsenal. Why? Because Israel won't let it. Um, It's existential. Uh, the, The Iranians have threatened to use the bomb against Israel and to destroy Israel. They called it a one bomb state and they said it doesn't matter to them if Israel then retaliates and kills 20 million Iranians. They're prepared to sacrifice 20 million Iranians to get rid of the little Satan, Israel, and probably ultimately the big Satan, the United States. So Israel will not allow Uh, Iran to develop nuclear weapons, no matter who the president of the United States is, no matter who the prime minister is, it will use whatever resources it has, technological, targeted assassination, and if necessary, an attack from the air, the sea, and the ground to destroy 
Iran's capacity to develop nuclear weapons. And people say, well, it would only stop them for two or three years. But then Israel will do it again two or three years later. And then they'll do it again two or three years later. It is a given of Israeli policy, and Iran has to know this, and America has to know this. It is a given of Israeli policy that Iran will not ever develop a nuclear arsenal that could destroy the state of Israel. The Jewish people experienced one Holocaust, and the leaders of Israel understand that this is the greatest threat of a repeat Holocaust, of another six million Jews, Israelis, uh, being killed by a nuclear attack from Iran. So it won't happen. The only question is how it stopped. And the best way to stop it is through diplomacy and negotiation and a deal that really has teeth. But the Iran deal that was uh, accepted by John Kerry and Barack Obama is not that deal. It's a terrible deal. And uh, it was universally rejected by uh, Israel and, and condemned by many senators, congressmen, and even members of the Obama administration. It was not a popular deal among American political leaders when it was signed back uh, some years ago. So I hope that uh, when Biden becomes president, he will understand that that deal should never, ever be uh, rewritten uh, without change, uh, re-signed without change. Significant changes have to be made for the deal to have any effect. And the deal in the end, if it doesn't stop Iran from spinning the centrifuges, Israel will stop it by whatever force is necessary. America would do the same thing. Any country in the world threatened in that way would do the same thing. I think a lot of people wish that we had taken action to prevent North Korea from developing a nuclear weapon before it did, but we didn't. And now we're confronted with an inability to negotiate with them because they have the ability to deliver nuclear weapons, if not to the United States. Uh, mainland and certainly to the Hawaiian Islands and other American territories, and perhaps uh, within a short period of time to the western parts of the United States. So containment, mutually assured destruction, deterrence, they don't work with countries like North Korea or Iran. They may have worked with the Soviet Union and the United States, but prevention is the only thing that works. Iran must never, ever, under any circumstances, be allowed to develop a nuclear arsenal and Israel, the United States, together or alone, will and will have to stop that from ever happening. Interested in your views on that. Interested in your calls on that. Tell me whether you think I'm overstating it. What would you do as an American if the threat were directed at America? Well, you don't have to guess what America would do. We had that threat directed at us during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Do you think we sat back and ignored it or simply relied on deterrence? No. We said that we're setting up a quarantine and anybody who tries to break the quarantine will be attacked. Uh, we were lucky. We had statesmen uh, in charge, not only of the United States, Robert Kennedy and John Kennedy, um, the great book's been written about it, but Khrushchev, who finally backed away and took the nuclear weapons out of Cuba. And so we have faced that, and we've responded, and Israel will respond in a similar manner. Great call. Thanks. Our next call is from Tony. Uh, I'm concerned about your potential nomination of uh, Trump for the uh, Peace Prize. Uh, let me give you a crazy hypothetical very briefly. Um, if Adolf Hitler had uh, brokered a peace agreement between two, let's say, obscure countries, um, would you nominate Hitler for 
the Nobel Peace Prize? Well, that's an interesting question. In fact, it was not a hypothetical. It was a real situation. Gertrude Stein actually proposed Hitler for a Nobel Peace Prize prior to the, the Second World War. You know, if Hitler had uh, said, uh, look, I think we're entitled to uh, Czechoslovakia, um, but we're not going to go in. We're going to make a peaceful arrangement with the Czechs about the Sudetenland, and we're going to make a peaceful arrangement with the French, and we're going to do this, and we're not going to kill any of our people, and we're not going to do... One can imagine an argument. Uh, it's hard to ever have any hypothesis around Hitler, because we now know what Hitler did. He killed 50 million people, um, genocidally murdered 6 million Jews. So impossible. But any analogy, of course, between Hitler and Trump is absurd. Uh, Hitler, Hitler was a warmonger. Trump has not gone to war. Trump has been the most peaceful uh, president in, 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 in uh, modern times. He's withdrawn troops. I, I'm not here as a advocating uh, Trump for the Nobel Prize in Medicine or the Nobel Prize in Immigration. Um, what I'm talking about is the fact that he did bring about the Abrahamic Accords. He didn't start any wars. He didn't uh, engage in any attacks. Um, <coughs> and um, so there's a plausible argument. Uh, I, I appreciate your views. But the analogy to Hitler, I think never should any analogies be made between any American politician and Hitler. But the question is a fair one. If Hitler had, if a 1935 Hitler, who wouldn't be the Hitler we, we know and hate and despise, a 1935 Hitler had decided to comply with the Versailles Peace Treaty and give up his arms and, you know, do all the things that your question suggests, it would be a fair, it would be a fair question. But it's not a fair question now in light of what we know that Hitler did. And there's no comparison or analogy between Hitler and any American politician in the history of the United States. The next call is from Tristan. I was just wondering about the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, basically, Biden wants to join back in. Trump pulled out. I was of the opinion that the deal was sort of good in preventing new, uh, Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. I wanted to know your opinion. Was the deal flawed? Um, was it the best thing we could get? I hear uh, people inside Israel's government are now second-guessing, pushing the United States to get out of the Iran nuclear deal. Thank you. Thanks again. Great question. I answered part of it before, but, you know, I was at the speech uh, that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu gave uh, in front of Congress uh, against Iran's nuclear program. I was honored to sit next to Elie Wiesel and his wife while the president uh, didn't come. The member, some members of Congress didn't come, but Prime Minister Netanyahu delivered a phenomenal speech, turned a lot of minds around uh, against Iran developing nuclear weapons. The deal itself was a disaster. It was one-sided. It gave the Iranians billions of dollars, some of which was in cash to spend on terrorism, and probably some of that money went to killing Americans, uh, certainly killing civilians and innocent uh, people. Uh, and we got very little in response. I think they continued to spin centrifuges. There was minimal inspection. Um, they cheated. Um, and, um, and, and that doesn't mean it was right to get out of the deal completely. My own preference would have been for President Trump to threaten to get out of the deal and sit down and renegotiate a far, far better deal. And I think that's something that, uh, uh, that Biden could probably do. 
you say, is it the best we could have gotten? Well, you can always walk away from a deal. The best is not always good enough. And if they couldn't do better, then I think they shouldn't have signed off on this deal. I think they could have done better. I think we didn't have the best negotiators. And I fear that some of those negotiators are already in the Biden government, John Kerry, for example, Wendy Sherman. Um, so I worry that we didn't send our A-team to do the negotiation that got us the very bad Iran deal. And I hope if we do have a new deal, we will send our A-plus negotiating team to get the best possible deal imaginable. Our next call is from Tammy. To answer your question, can he pardon his family or himself? Of course he can, because nobody's going to stop him. They haven't stopped him with the craziness he's done so far. So who will stop him now? Nobody's had the guts to stand up to him thus far. So until somebody does that, he's going to take it as far as we allow him to. Well, the question is, uh, constitutionally, can he pardon his own family? The answer is yes. Will he? The answer is no, because they've committed no crimes. There's an op-ed in today's New York Times against prosecuting Trump, saying he didn't commit any crimes. Well, why are we talking about prosecuting him? And he won't pardon himself. Uh, does he have a constitutional right to do so? Nobody knows the answer to that, except Professor Lawrence Tribe, who knows everything. He's a know-it-all. And he cited the wrong provision of the Constitution uh, on CNN, uh, when he said that the president couldn't pardon himself. Listen to the absurd argument that Tribe made. If this were an argument made by a student, it would get a D with great inflation. He pointed to the provision of the Constitution that says that a person who is impeached can be prosecuted after he's removed from office. Yeah, that's true. And therefore, he says, it would be absurd to have that provision if a president could pardon himself. But he didn't read the rest of the Constitution, or he just ignored it. Because uh, clearly, people can be impeached other than the president. What if the vice president were impeached and removed and prosecuted? Surely the president could pardon the vice president or the secretary of defense, as President uh, George H.W. Bush did um, uh, uh, pardon the secretary of defense. So Tribe's argument is absurd, preposterous, and deliberately misleading. Uh, another part of the Constitution that he failed to cite is the one that says a president has the absolute power to pardon uh, except in cases of impeachment, which means he can pardon anybody for anything. He just couldn't pardon anybody for impeachment. He can't pardon himself if he's being impeached from impeachment, and he couldn't pardon the Secretary of Defense who was being impeached. Impeachment is outside of the range of pardon power. But if you're prosecuted after impeachment, the Constitution doesn't say a president can't uh, pardon somebody who's already been impeached and who is being charged with a crime if he's not the president. So the question remains, what if it is the president who's been impeached and removed and now is being prosecuted? Can he pardon himself? We don't know the answer to that. And Professor Tribe, you don't know the answer to that. And please stop misleading people. You're a professor of constitutional law. You're supposed to be telling them the truth about what the Constitution says. And the Constitution doesn't always say what Tribe wants it to say. That's the way he reads the Constitution. The Constitution is Tribe's private document that always comes out on the side of his political party, on the side of his personal candidates, and on the side of his personal wishes and ideology. That's not the Constitution that was passed by our framers and that has endured 225 years. 
thankfully, Tribe only has the power to speak on CNN, not the power to implement any of his views uh, in, uh, in the American uh, government. So the issue of whether the president can pardon himself, nobody knows the answer to that question. The only way it could get tested is if the president did pardon himself and then some prosecutor prosecuted him. And he raised as a defense the pardon. And the court said, no, the pardon's invalid because the president can't pardon himself. We would then know the answer to that question. Do not believe what Professor Tribe tells you the answer to that question is. Because if the shoe were on the other foot, if it was somebody he liked to as president, he'd come out the other way. He would tell you, sure, the president can pardon himself if the president were President Clinton or President Obama. So please only listen to people who give you neutral, objective views on the Constitution. That's why you should listen to The Dirt Show, because that's what you get on this show. Our last question today is from Deborah. Hi, Alan Dershowitz. My name is Deborah Gisby. I just wanted to ask you about your Nobel Peace Prize um, nomination for Trump. Have you lost all shreds of dignity, of, of morality, of what makes a human being? Are you kidding? I, I, this is just outrageous. He needs to be put in prison for all the stuff that he's done. And we all know what he's done, and I'm sure it will all come out. But just for your own edification, uh, that post you made is just absolutely outrageous and and offensive. And I just wanted to leave you that message. Thank you. Appreciate the call, but this is typical. Not a single substantive argument, not a single rational point, just ad hominem after ad hominem. He belongs in jail. It's outrageous. You've lost your credibility. That's what I'm used to today. Can't we have a serious, rational argument? I set out the three criteria for winning the Nobel Peace Prize. Trump meets the three criteria. The Nobel Peace Prize has gone to Yasser Arafat. It went to Anwar Sadat, who waged uh, uh, a war that killed many, many people uh, against Israel on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year. It went to Henry Kissinger, who many people thought should go to jail. I disagree fundamentally. I think Henry Kissinger was a great man, uh, is a great man. Um, but uh, it went to him for, for, for specific acts of making peace. So please... People who call, yeah, you can insult me, save that for the end, insult me, attack me, but give arguments, make arguments. The criteria for the Der Show is rational arguments that pass the shoe on the other foot test. And sorry, last caller, but you don't meet those criteria. Just name calling won't do it. Just saying that Trump belongs in jail won't persuade me that he doesn't meet the criteria that are set out in the will of Alfred Nobel. That's the governing criteria. Uh, the previous argument, at least, that talked about making an analogy to Hitler. I didn't agree with that. I don't think you can ever make analogies between Hitler and any American leader, but at least it was an argument. But sorry, uh, the point you made is not an argument. It's just it's just, just schoolyard shouting. Um, and that doesn't further the argument or doesn't further intellectual debate. So I invite you to call back and make some arguments and I'll respond to them. I'll respond to all of your arguments. Uh, so please continue to call. If you want to insult me, okay, but make your arguments and I will be happy to respond to them on The Dirt Show. Please call 24-7. The number is 216-710-0050. Keep your comments short and to the point. Again, the number for you to call 24-7 is 216-710-0050.
800-500-0050. Hard questions, criticisms, everything's fine. Just keep your questions short and I'll answer them all on The Dirt Show.